Haggai chapter 2. We finish off the book tonight. Haggai 2, if you're able to, go ahead and stand with me as we read the word this evening. We'll be verses 20 through 23 tonight. Haggai 2, verse 20 through 23. The Bible says, Again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, a governor of Judah, and saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, say the Lord of hosts, I will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, a son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Our Father, we ask your blessing on the word tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So tonight we're finishing off the book with the fourth oracle of Haggai. I've really enjoyed this book uh, tremendously. A lot of nuggets of tre- and treasures in this book, I think. The first oracle was a correction for the people. The second was their repentance. In between the second and third, we saw a response from the people to God. In the third oracle, we saw a picture of their prior disobedience. And this last one is a promise of future glory. God was not done. As much as they had been mourning the temple project, mourning the glory of the old temple, as if they'd never have that glory again, God said, I'm going to do something greater. This house will have more glory than the last house. And they were left, I think, kind of speechless by that. And again, our lesson to that was don't hold on to the past as if God's done all his great work in the past. Uh, God has not done all of his great work in the past. Uh, God is doing great works all throughout history. I think one of the sad things about uh, the viewpoint a lot of people have about the Bible is that the great days are over. I don't know where they get that from. You know, Jesus is coming back, right? The greatest days are are not over. The greatest day was not when Jesus came in Bethlehem. It's when he comes in glory. I think we forget that. I think we... I don't know if it's just a pessimism or if it's a bad nostalgia, but we tend to look at the past and say, oh, God's done everything. God hasn't scratched the surface of what he can do in this world among his people. They're surrendered to him. And I, I think we do a disservice to ourselves and to God when we say, you know what? The great days are over. The great days are over. The glory has departed. I, mean, I look back at the revivals of history, and there's been some great revivals, but I believe God can do greater. I don't believe he's done. All the great ministries of the past, great preaching of the past. I think, well, the greatest preachers are, 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 have already come and gone, I guess. There's just no good. No, there won't be another Charles Spurgeon, but there'll be somebody else that God works through, like he worked through. God's not one and done. All right, the pinnacle was the Great Awakening. From there, it's just all downhill. That's not, that's not how God works. We need to remember that 
what God is doing in the world is far greater than you and I can see right now. We have such a small vantage point of history. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He's doing something magnificent that we're going to look back on one day and go, wow, what a, <laughs> what a plan. But in our own day, I mean, there are people today who mourn that, oh, the Lord's not moving anymore. The Lord's not doing anything. You know why he's not doing anything today? Same reason he didn't in the Bible. He did not many mighty works because of their unbelief. Stop unbelieving what the Lord can do and believe the Lord can do great things. Let's start in verse 20 tonight as we go through this promise of future glory he's giving his people. And again, the word of the Lord came into Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, so we're going to pause here. We're in the same day as the last oracle. We see this here in verse 18. It's the 20, 24th day of the ninth month. Haggai will address Zerubbabel as the ruler and representative of the Jewish nation and the predecessor and type of the true king of the Jews. Keep that in mind. Zerubbabel is a type of the coming Messiah. So when he says, in that day, I'm going to make you, Zerubbabel, a signet ring, he's not talking about the man, Zerubbabel. He'll be long dead by that point. But he is a figure, a type of him who is to come. Verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. He repeats the promise of verse number 6. Look back there if you would. Verse number 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. This promise, which we saw repeated in Hebrews, has eternal consequences for God's people. It's the promise of the messianic age and the kingdom coming that would never be destroyed. If you remember, Daniel had the vision of the rock cut out without hands that crushed all the nations of the world. All of this is pointing to a spiritual fulfillment of the promises of God to his people. Spiritual truths, and this is something we struggle with in the church today. People are looking for, for physical fulfillments of promises that were never meant to be physical, right? It'd be like as if we said, well, Zerubbabel must come again because Zerubbabel was promised to be made a signet ring. Well, no, Zerubbabel is a, a physical man who was a picture of a spiritual promise, that is, of the Messiah who is coming, Spiritual truths are often communicated through literal things. Consider Moses and the rock. There was a literal man named Moses. He struck a literal rock, and literal water came out of the rock. The picture, however, was of Christ being struck by God and the Holy Spirit being poured out as a result. Spiritual truths pictured through literal things. The temple was a literal building teaching uh, the truth of a spiritual temple made up of God's people. Uh, take again the land promises to Israel. The land promises uh, were never about a small piece of dirt in the Middle East. It was never about that. It was always about the world. And Abraham knew this. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 4. Let me show you this. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. The Bible says, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
Now, where did God promise Abraham the world? Well, Abraham knew that the promise of the land in, the, in Israel was a type, a foreshadowing of the world. We see throughout the Old Testament that God would put his name forever in Jerusalem. Our mind goes immediately to the city in the Middle East. Was God's name in that city? Yes. But was that the end all of God's plan? And the answer, I think, is no. It was a physical example of a spiritual truth. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. What's helpful is when you read the New Testament, you understand the New Testament is an application interpretation of the Old Testament. The, the truths, the, the promises that were given are spiritual in nature. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. See, Abraham saw past the physical city. Abraham's hopes weren't set on a small parcel of land in the Middle East. He believed he would inherit the world. He looked for an eternal city. Now, he knew that the, that the land he inherited was a foreshadowing, it was a picture, it was a type of that which was to come. People say that Mount Zion is in Israel today. I mean, the physical Israel. But that Zion was a physical place that pointed to a spiritual reality. So yes, in the Old Testament, when it talks about Mount Zion, it's talking about physical Jerusalem, but that Jerusalem pointed ahead to a spiritual city. Go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Hebrews 12, 22. Hebrews 12, 22. The Bible says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. That Mount Zion is not in the Middle East, is it? You can fly to Israel today, are you going to find uh, heavenly beings there? No. Are you going to find the throne of God there? No, you're not going to find that. It pointed to a spiritual Zion where God dwells today. Go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 25. Galatians 4, 25. Galatians 4, 25. Paul says, for this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answered to Jerusalem, which it now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. You know the goal of God is not Jerusalem in the Middle East today? There's a heavenly Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God, Revelation chapter, I think it's 21, where we see that. This Jerusalem points to that Jerusalem. It points to a spiritual reality. We're not promised forever in the Jerusalem of today, are we? We're promised it in the new Jerusalem. Streets of gold, gates of pearl. 
not streets of stone and gates of iron and brass. That's not what we're promised. That pointed ahead to a future reality. This brings us all back to Haggai and this temple and the promises that are to come. So go back to Haggai chapter 2. I wanted you to see that the promises, though physical, though manifested through physical means in the Old Testament, point to spiritual truth. If we miss that, we miss a whole lot of fulfillment of Old Testament truths. You'll be surprised to know there's only two temples spoken of in the Bible. That might shake us a little bit, because in secular history, we often refer to Second Temple Judaism. You ever heard that term? Second Temple Judaism? Well, the first temple was Solomon's temple, right? So the second temple was the second temple, and then some churches teach a third and a fourth temple, and even a fifth temple, I've heard. How many temples are there? Well, as far as the Bible's concerned, there's one temple. Look at the biblical language, okay? Look at verse number 3 of Haggai chapter 2. He says, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as of nothing? The comparison of it as nothing? Notice that this, that's not an accident. God didn't misspeak. He says, How many of you saw this house in its former glory? You stop there and say, well, Lord, that's not the same house. It's a different, that house is destroyed. This house is being built. So this house has had no former glory. As far as God is concerned, this is the same house. This is the same temple, and it had a former glory, and it will have a future glory. God is equating this new building with the one that Solomon built. This is something that gets overlooked a lot. We, we, we tend to, I don't know, it's the tiny details that are overlooked a lot of times in Bible interpretation. How many times have I read that and missed the word this? And never thought deeply about that. What does he mean by this house in its former glory? This house isn't even fully built yet. And won't be fully built until the time, actually past the time of Christ, I believe. This house, he says. Many scholars solved the big theological conundrums, but they missed the small, insignificant points. But we've got to stop... Dating stuff like the like the or like the secularist date. See, de- secularists can't be trusted to date biblical things. You understand that? So when they say Exodus can't happen because uh, it was during this king of Egypt, they're probably wrong about their dates. You can't trust the second. The secularists have every reason to be wrong to disprove the Bible. Keep that in mind. So when they talk about, you say, well, Pastor, there's definitely a second temple and a first temple because that's what history tells us. Well, history is not God, and God says this house in its former glory. He's equating the second temple, what we call the second temple, with the first temple. It's the same house as far as God is concerned. Go to verse 9. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. If we put this in modern English, we say something like, the later glory of this house. The later glory of this house. As far as God is concerned, this is not a new temple, but the same temple and the later glory of that temple will be greater because God will come in the flesh and fill the temple with his teaching. To emphasize this point, look at verse three. Who is left among you that saw this house in its first glory? This house. Let's, let's, I want to kind of pound that into your mind tonight because to God, there's two temples. The temple that stood in Jerusalem and the temple of the body of Christ today. That's the second temple. The second temple was not standing when Jesus came. That was the first temple in its latter glory. 
as far as God is concerned. Same house, same temple. The second temple today is the temple of God. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. The physical temple pointed to a spiritual temple, 1 Peter 2.5. In fact, turn there briefly with me, 1 Peter 2.5. Let's look at that. 1 Peter 2.5. 1 Peter 2.5. It's kind of an important point here. The Bible says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. See, I love that he includes the word lively stones or living stones. What did Jesus say about the old temple? There's not one stone left upon another that shall not be thrown down. The stones of the old temple were destroyed and laid to waste, and it was replaced with what? Stones of brick and mortar? No, living stones. Those who are preserved by Christ himself. He preserves this new temple. He loves this new temple. He indwells this new temple. Not only did the physical temple point to a spiritual reality, but the actual physical sacrifices pointed to spiritual sacrifices. See, the problem, the reason church is the way it is today The reason it's so irreverent is we have lost sight of the fact that we are offering sacrifices to God because we have stopped looking for spiritual truths, thinking, oh, well, the Old Testament is all just literal stuff. Yes, literal people made literal sacrifices that pointed ahead to spiritual sacrifices. Does that make sense? So when we come to church today, it's like a rock concert, it's a party, it's irreverent because we're not making sacrifices. Those are done. Those are thousands of years ago. We're just Jesus' buddies now. No, when we come to the Lord's house to worship, we are making spiritual sacrifices. We are to be just as careful, just as cautious, just as reverent as the Old Testament saint who brought their sacrifice to the temple in Jerusalem. Because we're bringing ours to a better Jerusalem, to a better temple, to a better Zion, to a living Christ. We are making sacrifices today. Now, I don't say we're not making sin offerings. Christ made that, amen, right, Hebrews, once for all. But there were other sacrifices besides sin offerings. And we still make those. Turn to Hebrews 13, 15. Let me show you that, Hebrews 13, 15. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. The Bible says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit. Fruit. That's, that's a, a, what you bring, the fruit of your sacrifice. What you bring in the Old Testament would be like a fruit offering. The fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. When we come and we sing... We're making a spiritual, so we're praising the Lord. It's a spiritual offering to God. Uh, Revelation refers to the prayers of the saints as, a, as, as an incense offering. So was there a literal priest in a literal temple with literal incense? 
waving it around and bringing the incense? He, there was. Was that the end-all, be-all of what God was doing? No. He was pointing ahead to the day when we would gather in prayer meeting and an angel in heaven would take the incense and would take the prayers of the saints and would put that sweet smell out before the Lord and we're making spiritual sacrifices. What we're doing here tonight is spiritual. What we do on Sundays is spiritual. When you separate, when you stop looking for the, the spiritual fulfillment of these literal types in the Old Testament, what you end up with is the, you know, red and purple flashing lights and the smoke machines and the head banging and all the other stuff that goes on. Or the running around, jumping over pews and speaking in, in, in weird babble uh, gibberish. The reason all that happens is because we've lost sight of the fact that we are offering sacrifices to a holy God in a heavenly temple. That's the problem. We want to fix our worship. Remember what we're doing in worship. Remember what we're doing. We're worshiping God. If you're not worshiping God, I'd be careful. I'm not one of the preachers that God's going to strike you dead, but there were severe consequences in the Old Testament temple. If you went in there and played games, you weren't there to play games. You were there to serve and to worship. Serve and to worship. Do you worship today or do you just sing the songs because you know them? Do you just, as J. Vernon McGee used to always warn, don't sing it if you're not going to do it. He used to get so mad. He goes, I pastor my church. I can't do his accent, but he said, I was pastoring my church. I have people who I knew weren't walking with God. I knew they weren't praying. And they'd be out there singing, he walks with me and he talks with me. He said, one day I went up to one of them and said, you're a liar. He said, when did I lie? Because you lied to God when you were singing that song earlier. He doesn't walk with you and talk with you. Don't sing it if you don't want to do it. Don't sing, draw me nearer, 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 blessed. If you don't want to draw nearer to Christ. Don't sing, have thine own way, Lord, if he can't have his own way. The Old Testament is very clear about lying to God and making false vows. But see, we've lost sight in church of what we're doing. We just sing the songs and we know the tune, we know the hymn, and so we just, we just sing like we're in our car singing to the radio. We're not in our car singing to the radio. We are worshiping and offering sacrifices to God. So make sure if you sing it, you're willing to do it. Because if not, you're lying to God. You're lying to God in his temple. What we're doing, church, is spiritual in nature. There are two temples, not three, not four. What do they build another temple in Jerusalem, Pastor? Then what? It'll be blasphemy. And the sacrifices won't benefit anybody at all. At all. God has a temple in the world today for which he sacrificed, who sacrifices back to him in song, in word, in offering. God's not in Jerusalem today. He's in the heavenly Jerusalem today. I, would, I get disheartened when I hear these supposedly Christian pastors look at the wailing wall in Jerusalem and go, oh, that's so... That's so amazing. Those Jews out there praying. That's blasphemy. 
That's rejection of the Messiah who came. Looking, there's no other Messiah coming. So, oh, they're praying for the Messiah. No, they're not. They rejected him. If he came back today, what they do? Crucify him again. They don't want him. You ever seen Jews react? For fun sometimes, pull up on YouTube, street preachers preaching in Israel. The anger and the hatred they have for Christ. They're not praying for Christ. They're idolatrous. God's not there. God's not there. There are actually Christians today who give money. Churches today that give money to help build the temple in Jerusalem. What a waste of the Lord's money. What a waste. Put that money to missions and build Christ's real temple made of living stones. He indwells his people today. If they build a new one in, in Israel today, it won't be God's temple. It'll be their temple. There are two temples in history. The first one that sat on the Temple Mount, Solomon's Temple and Zerubbabel's Temple, are the same temple according to God's word. And it was destroyed and replaced. It pointed to a true temple, which is the temple of God's people today. Built upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles and prophets. So where do we get terms like second temple from? Well, not from the Bible. We get them from secularism. We bring it into our biblical interpretation. The decline of the nation, speaking of the Jewish nation, would continue until she gets to the point where she crucifies her Messiah. That decline is seen here in the rebuilding of the temple. This temple lacked an important piece of furniture. It lacked the Ark of the Covenant on which dwelt the presence of God. That was important to the Jewish people. So what happened to the ark? They just misplaced it? Was it stolen? No, God took it away from them. Because he was coming in the flesh. No longer to dwell on furniture, but to dwell in his people. An important lesson brought to us via this raising of the temple is that material magnificence cannot replace spiritual glory. Material magnificence cannot replace spiritual glory. The temple was stunning. I mean, Zerubbabel's temple was stunning. I think I mentioned earlier in the series that before Titus and his troops destroyed the temple, they walked through it in awe of the beauty of the temple. But it was just materialism. It was just decorations. It was just... It didn't have the... The presence of God in the sense that Solomon's temple had it. It didn't have the power, the prestige that Solomon's temple had. In the church today, we've taken to material beauty over the glory of the power of God. We've done the same thing. We need to remind ourselves, it's not about material goods or bank accounts or beauty. Is God there? Is God working? Is God worshipped properly? When people look for churches today, they look for the, the nice, the convenient. But often they don't look for God. Don't look for, it's, a, it's a secondary thought. What kind of kids program do they have? 
What, what kind of a ladies group do they have? What, what activities do they have? We've replaced the power of God with busy schedules and lots of activities. Take a lesson from the temple. Outward beauty cannot replace spiritual glory. We cannot ever be comfortable with that. Wealth and ornate buildings don't replace spiritual power and glory. We've traded one for the other today, haven't we? At least I feel we have in the church, the greater church at large. We've traded the gospel for easy believism, for big numbers. We fill stadiums, we get thousands to walk forward and sign a card or pray a prayer. But there's no real life change to them. And we don't even care. We're not concerned if their lives aren't changed. Churches are nothing more than social gatherings, self-help. Not places where God is lifted up and honored. The glory of Christianity was once her power. I mean, when the Salvation Army came to a town, people got angry. I mean, the bad people, right? When they were, they were in India, they set up a compound with big high walls, and they rescued like thousands of these like underage prostitutes off the street who were being trafficked. When they came to new towns, I mean, people got angry. They feared. They rioted. Kind of like, you know, when Paul and them were preaching, and they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we make idols for Diana. They're going to put us out of business. That's what happened when the Salvation Army marched into town. Who fears the Salvation Army today? It's a place to, to buy cheap clothes. The, the glory of Christianity was her power. Look at Hudson Taylor and the work he did in China. There was power in Christianity at one time, and now we replaced that. Now most mission trips are just vacations. Everybody posts pictures online of them eating the local food and ziplining in the jungles in the Amazon. We've lost the power. We've traded it for wealth, for numbers. I was at church just the other day. Had a big carnival for Halloween. 38 people were saved. I checked their live stream the next day. Nobody was baptized. Nobody joined the church. You know what that tells me? 38 people prayed a prayer or signed a card, but weren't serious about the Lord. And how many people looked at that post and said, well, amen, 36 eight. that's wonderful. A missionary I know said, we had 400 saved. And you look at it and go, wow, 400 saved, amen. I mean, in the jungles of like Cambodia, what a wonderful number. And then he said, oh, 21 are baptized. 400 professed Christ and only 21 followed through? We've traded the glory of changed lives for numbers, for outward praise. How many people will now send them lots of money? Because look at they won 400 people. The church used to be marked by prayer power, 
evangelistic zeal, and righteous living that clearly defined us from the world. We traded that for beautiful buildings, financial wealth, trendy music, coffee bars, and so on. Nobody fears the church anymore. Nobody fears the church anymore. The people mistook the promised glory for beauty and opulence. They took of the treasures of the king of Persia. They were happy to bring in the wealth of Rome, specifically that of Herod. When Jesus came, it was the beauty of the temple buildings that they thought would impress him. Oh, look, Jesus, look how beautiful our temple is. He wasn't impressed, was he? Verily, verily, I say unto you, not one stone here should be left upon another that will not be thrown down. I'm not impressed with the beauty of your temple when your worship is lacking power. He's not impressed. The glory of this temple. See, when, they took, when he promised a greater glory for this temple, they took it as beauty, political power. But what he meant was something better than a glory cloud would occupy it. See, in the Old Testament, they had the glory cloud that sat upon the mercy seat. The promise is it's better than a glory cloud. I'm coming in a body, and I'm going to teach you. I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to expound the law for you. I'm going to purge this temple, and I'm going to destroy this temple. And I'm going to build an eternal spiritual temple, spiritual temple that will not be corrupted. I talk about the church, by the way. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the church is corrupted. The church is not corrupted. The false, visible church is corrupted. The true church of God will never be corrupted. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? That's the promise of Christ. Christ's church is pure. It was not a promise of financial or material glory spoken of, but spiritual glory. The glory of this temple was in him who was made flesh and dwelt among us. In this temple, Christ, the Son of God, as a child, would be offered to God. It was there he sat among the doctors at 12 years old and taught, and they were wondering and astonished at his doctrine. It was here that God would come in the flesh and reveal things hidden from the foundation of the world. The glory of the temple of Solomon was that in, the, that in it the majesty of God appeared, unveiling itself in a cloud. In this house being built, that same majesty would show itself united with flesh, visible to sight. Go back to our text in Haggai chapter 2. Look at verse number 9. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. What is this promise of peace? So studying it, I was thinking about that. Did the promise fail? Because the temple was destroyed. The city was destroyed. Over a million Jews were killed, many more taken as slaves. 
This temple is subservient to Persia at this point. Later it will be subservient to Rome. Did the promise fail? Or was the promise spiritual? That's the question. The Jews saw this, and knowing nothing of peace in Jesus, argued from the absence of outward peace that the prophecy was not fulfilled under the second temple. And many churches, they have kind of grabbed onto that argument. Well, the promise must still be future because it hasn't been fulfilled. What they miss is that spiritual peace is, throughout prophecy, part of the promise of the gospel. Christ himself was to be the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. It says of the increase of his government and of his peace, there was to be no end, Isaiah 53, 5. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. John 16, 33, Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. Look at verse 22. And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. And I'll overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. When is this overthrowing of the throne of kingdoms? It's tied to the last verse and the shaking of the heavens and the earth. When did that happen? According to Hebrews 12, when the new covenant came in and the old covenant passed away. When Christ rose and ascended, he was given supreme authority over all nations, all powers given unto me in heaven and on earth. The kingdoms of this world today are under the authority of Christ. They are commanded to kiss the son lest he be angry, Psalm chapter 2. So you really think America is under the authority of Christ today? Absolutely. And accountable to him, by the way. If you deny that, that, that America today is subject to Christ, then why do you believe we're under God's judgment today? <laughs> What right does he have to judge us if we're under his authority? Of course we're under his authority. That's why we're under judgment. Because we've been disobedient to the commands of God. We've been disobedient to the law of God. And our worship has been tainted by the world. Of course we're under the Christ's authority today. That's why those who shut down churches better be tremble and be afraid. They laid their hand against God's temple. You don't think we're in a judgment today. Just turn on the news. People think they're animals. They think animals are people. They think human babies are parasites to be killed. Marriage is whatever. I saw the other day a guy marrying his house. Why not? We just make it up, don't we? No, the law of God. We've thrown out the law of God. We're under, he's got us in derision. He's got us in confusion. And it's worse, isn't it? I mean, when you were younger, right, you could see, like, sin in society. But it's like we lost our minds today. We have. The Bible says God will cause them to, to, to believe a lie. Strong delusions. So much that they don't know if they're a man or a woman. Or a dog or a cat. We shake our heads and sometimes even laugh at what goes on in the world today. But it's a sign that God's judging us because we have not kissed the sun. We've rebelled against his authority. The glory of the temple today, the second temple, is that Christ dwells among his people and in his people through the Holy Spirit. We have today what the prophets, prophets desired to have but never received. That's why it's so puzzling 
these doctrines and these church movements that want to live in the Old Testament. Why would you want to live in the shadow when reality is here? I don't get it. The fullness has come. Verse 23. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. We now we know that Zerubbabel is dead, don't we? He's been dead for a long time. He's not literally going to fulfill this. But he, he was a literal man who pointed to a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality. In Christ, God reversed the curse of Adam. Death itself was turned back at the resurrection. The process of restoring Eden had begun. That being said, Zerubbabel was a picture of the reversing of the curse. I call you back to the curse on the line of Jeconiah, which is in the royal line of David. We talked about that last year at Christmas time. Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jeconiah, and he pictures the restoration of that line through the coming Messiah. Especially when you consider the fact that we talked about, I think early on in the series, that technically he wasn't he was the son of Je Jeconiah, but not born to Jeconiah. Remember we talked about that? He's given another father's name in the Bible. Probably because he was adopted into that line, as Christ was adopted into the line of Jeconiah through Joseph. He's a picture of the coming Messiah and the restoration of all that has been cursed by God. God in Christ is not just restoring fallen men and nations and creation, but cursed bloodlines. You know there's Moabites in the genealogy of Jesus? You know why? Because the Bible says God is reconciling all things in Christ. All things. Not all people. I'm not a universalist. But there are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in heaven. In Revelation. That includes Moabites. That includes Philistines. Has to. It has to. That includes the line of Jeconiah. He's reconciling all things to himself in Christ. As we close out the book, we're left with the principles that we need to take our eyes off the past. We learn from the past. It's okay. I'm very reminiscent. I like to reminisce. It's okay. But don't hold on to the past as if God isn't working in the future. The problem with these people in the temple was their eyes were so filled with tears over what was, they didn't get to work on what could be, what was commanded to be. Look to God's glorious future. The reason God doesn't work today is we don't expect him to. The reason he doesn't answer prayers, we don't expect him to. You've got to pray believing that God can do what you asked him to do. The lesson to take away from this book also is that we're not defined by our past. We are what God has declared us to be. Let go of who you used to be and grab a hold of who God has said you are. Holiness is purposeful. It doesn't come by contact. You don't get holy by being among holy people. You must be holy. You must seek holiness. 
Wickedness does come by contact. So be aware of who you have contact with. Be aware of who you spend your time with. That will affect your character. God's promises never fail. Never fail. There are physical realities that point us to spiritual truths. Remember in Romans chapter 9, when the argument comes to Paul, well, God's promises have failed. <laughs> Israel's not converted. What does Paul say? Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess God failed. Well, he says, no, no, you, mis you misinterpreted it. They're not all Israel who are of Israel. Those unbelieving ones that were cut off, to them doesn't pertain the promises or the fathers of the covenants. Well, who's a true Jew? Those who are one inwardly, not one outwardly. See, he was cutting off. See, they took the, they took the physical descendants of Abraham and said, oh, well, this is who the promise is to. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The promise is to this tree, Israel. And those unbelieving branches, they're being cut off. And these Gentile branches that believe, they're being grafted in. So if you're a believer today and you're a Gentile, you are as much a Jew as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're inheritor of the same promises with them. Because it was never two physical people. It was just spiritual seed. That's why I just love that verse in Romans chapter 4, where it, said, it talks about that Abraham was justified before circumcision so that the promise might be true to all the seed. Who's all the seed? Those who were not circumcised, the Gentiles. In other words, the seed, one seed, is Jew and Gentile, sharing in the promises of Abraham. Now, there was a physical nation that pointed to a spiritual reality. The promises of God never fail. Never. When you look for a temple in Jerusalem today, you're saying God's promises have failed, and he has to make that up. No. No. In Christ, Christ is the yea and amen to all the promises of God. In Christ have been fulfilled all of the promises to mankind from God. We have it all in Christ. Look to Christ. That's the overarching message of Haggai. Don't look to the former glory. Don't look to your own wealth. Don't look to the physical. Look to Christ. Look to the one who's coming. Zerubbabel, he was just a figure, a type, a picture of the one who was to come. The glory is not wealth or beauty. It's Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask your blessings on this word as it's gone out, Lord. I pray that it will touch hearts and you encourage us, Lord, and speak to us tonight. Help us to remember that physical things pointed to spiritual realities. You have fulfilled every promise you've made in Christ. He is the sum total of all you've promised humanity. In him we are reconciled. In him we are forgiven. In him we are made righteous. In him we are the temple of the living God. There is a heavenly Jerusalem. There is a heavenly Zion. There's a spiritual temple. There are spiritual sacrifices. Oh, help us to keep that in mind as we worship, Lord. The spiritual offerings that we're making. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That you are a covenant-keeping God, a promise-keeping God.
And the glory of the latter was greater than the glory of the first. What the people in Jesus' day put their eyes upon, Solomon in all his glory could only have dreamed of that. And what we have today, Lord, in this spiritual temple where you indwell your people through the Spirit, we have today what humans since the fall have always wanted and never achieved. We again walk with God, dwell with God, and you're renewing us in your own image. Help us to see Christ as the fulfillment of all the promises of God, the yes, the amen, the sum total. Help us to look to Christ, not to ourselves, not to this world, not to political parties or change or countries, but to the Christ who has all power in heaven and on earth. Thank you for what you've given us in Christ tonight. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.